This episode is brought to you by Thorn, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements... The tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s, where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. This episode is sponsored by 511, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 511 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 5.11 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 5.11tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, 
you will get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 476 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Nick Norris. Now, Nick is a Navy SEAL veteran, an elite endurance athlete, and he also trained under Jocko Willink. So this made it a very interesting conversation because I interviewed him just after attending the muster, Echelon Front muster. So we discuss a host of topics from his early life, his journey through into the military, and then most importantly, the work he's doing now. Nick found himself on his own mental health journey and ultimately ended up in the realm of Ibogaine, using psychedelics to heal both TBI and PTSD. And now he works with the C4 Foundation, bringing other members of the SEAL community in to address some of their mental health struggles. Now, before we get to that conversation, please just take a moment and go to whichever app you listen to this on, hit subscribe, leave feedback. I do love reading your feedback, but most importantly, leave a rating. Every five-star rating elevates this podcast, making it easier and easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 500 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. And this episode, for example, will truly save lives. So with that being said, I introduce to you Nick Norris. Enjoy. Well, Nick, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today. Oh, honor is all mine, brother. I appreciate the invite. Beautiful. And it was Jason Gardner that connected us, wasn't it? Jason did connect us. Jason is a very good man. He is. Well, we just finally met for the first time down at the muster. They came to Orlando. So obviously, we'll talk more about him and Jocko down the road, but yep. an amazing group of men and women. Yeah, I think I, I think I saw a picture of the two of you guys on the Instagram. Yes. Yeah, we were Insta famous <laughs> for a moment. <laughs> All right. Well, then very first question, where on planet Earth are we finding you today? So I'm in San Diego, California. Beautiful. That's where I live. Brilliant. All right. So I like to walk chronologically. So tell me where you were born and then tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Okay. Yeah. So I, I grew up in salt side of Chicago. Uh, Illinois. Um, grew up in a, a family with two sim- two younger siblings, uh, both brothers, uh, and then, you know, my mom and dad. And uh, neighborhood I grew up in um, was a lot of firefighters, police officers, uh, you know, union, uh, you know, kind of workers, tradesmen. Um, so very blue collar, uh, for the most part, Roman Catholic parishes, you know, you kind of identified yourself by what parish, uh, you belong to or, or where you lived. So, uh, you know, I, I ultimately got into, uh, the local Catholic grade school. And then that led to me going to an all boys, uh, Catholic high school in Chicago. Um, you know, and, and very active in athletics, you know, I, I found out very early on that I wasn't going to be the best football player, uh, just because of my size and stature <laughs> and, uh, got into wrestling in high school. And, you know, ultimately wrestling, uh, 
you know, became a big part of my life uh, growing up, you know, just from a discipline standpoint and, and work ethic standpoint. And, um, you know, my parents were, were both very loving. Uh, my, you know, my father unfortunately passed away back in 2005, but he was a, a massive part of my life, really instilled a lot of core values uh, that I, I still lean on today. Um, you know, work ethic, discipline, loyalty, uh, the importance of friendship and, and camaraderie. Uh, so my dad was very, very pivotal in my development as a young man. And my mom is, is still in Chicago. Uh, just a lovely woman, um, raised three boys and, uh, you know, she, you know, all in all, I mean, I lived in a very, very loving household. Beautiful. And your dad was a firefighter? Yeah, my dad was a firefighter, retired from, uh, Chicago fire department after, you know, probably 30 plus years, um, uh, retired as an engineer. Uh, he had, he had a scare with malignant melanoma, uh, when I was a little guy and that kind of kept him in that engineer role just to kind of keep him off his, off his feet a little bit. Um, I think his cancer was bad enough that they had to pull lymph nodes. So he, he lived the second half of his life, uh, with a Jope stocking on to control swelling in his leg when they pulled the lymph nodes, uh, out to, to test for cancer. So if, if you knew my dad, he was like the friendliest, funniest guy in the world. Like everybody knew him for his like boisterous sense of humor and his ability to connect with people. And, uh, the fact that he wore like a one legged, uh, stocking, uh, always became a topic of, of joking and conversation. No, I'm sure. Yeah. Just a, just an awesome guy. Yeah. He, uh, you know, the fact that he was a firefighter was a, a big part of my life. I spent a tremendous amount of time at the firehouse hanging out with the guys. Uh, I did a lot of my workouts there as I was like kind of in seventh and eighth grade in high school. Uh, used the steam bath and the saunas they had there and, uh, and ate dinner with everybody. So I think the concept of like community and fraternity was probably hammered into me pretty early, uh, just via the exposure to the fire department. Beautiful. Now, one thing that you know we're very aware of, and it's funny, I know that you know Kirk Parsley as well. He's been on here multiple times, and yeah, the impacts of shifts, I think, on on our profession has been very detrimental. Um, it, someone has to be up at night, but obviously, I don't know if we, our men and women get the right amount of time to recover between these shifts. Um, how long after he retired did he pass away? Uh, so my dad, he actually passed away within about a year of retirement, which I think is a pretty common occurrence amongst, you know, firefighters and police officers. Yeah. Which is, I mean, it's a, it's a horrendous thing. And, and what I always point to is I'm sure when your dad stood in the academy as a young man was probably compared to the community, one of the fittest mentally and physically, you know, compared to the, the population. So yeah. it, it's heartbreaking to see that these men and women, you know, serve the families obviously serve as well by their loved one leaving every you know third day and then they finally get to to spend some time with you know wives grandchildren whatever it is and then you know a year two years five years later a lot of them passed away yeah and hey it's a testament to the the trauma and the kind of the toll that the job takes on on the human body you know you don't you know growing up it was just kind of like the the norm right I, that my dad you know, would be up all night, you know, at the firehouse and then come back and like sleep during the day until the afternoon and then get up and he'd finally be up and ready to go. But like those disruptive sleep patterns, you know, probably were probably had a massive impact. Um, 
you know, as, as I think back on it now, I, I appreciate you bringing that up because I, I haven't is, <laughs> is focused as I am right now on kind of mild traumatic brain injury and, and all the things that veterans are dealing with. You know, I often forget that my dad, you know, dealt with a lot of the same stressors that, you know, me and a lot of my friends are dealing with right now. Yeah. Well, an interesting thing that, that Kirk educated me on, and for everyone listening, Kirk Parsi is another SEAL turned physician and an expert in the sleep medicine world, um, is he said that sleep deprivation and TBI look the same physiologically. So yeah. you have the myelin sheath being stripped from TBI, and then you also have the myelin sheath being stripped from sleep deprivation. So if mm-hmm. you have one of those, it's, it's terrible. And we don't seem to have as many TBIs in the fire service as you guys do, but then you take, you know, the military in general and you add TBI to sleep deprivation. Now you're compounding that effect. For sure. Yeah. I, I, and I know sleep deprivation is a big part of the struggles that a lot of us as veterans are dealing with. And, and I know that it has an impact on both firefighters and police officers out there. I mean, people don't realize how disruptive people's sleep patterns are. You know, when I go back and I talk to friends of mine in Chicago that are, you know, serving as both firefighters and police officers. I mean, they are constantly on rotating schedules. You know, one day they're on mornings, the next day they're on afternoons or, or evenings. And, uh, you know, their sleep is just all over the place. And no wonder, you know, you know these, these folks are, are having such a hard time. I mean, they're dealing with a high stress job. They have extremely disrupted sleep. And then, you know, they're aging, right? And we all struggle with kind of sleep as we age regardless. So it, it just, it's it's mind-blowing that we haven't focused on it more. Absolutely. Well, I mean, the thing is conversations like this that are bringing, you know, light to those areas to some of the treatments, and we'll talk about that as we get into it. Another common denominator with a lot of high performers is wrestling as they were, as they were younger. So when did you get into wrestling and kind of, how did you feel that element, that sport specifically served you in the selection process? <laughs> so I, I, the neighborhood I grew up in was notorious for, uh, you know, the, the boys wrestling and playing football. Those are kind of the go-to sports. Uh, I was introduced to wrestling at a young age and, and funny enough, I actually shied away from it. You know, I did it for a little while, but I didn't really latch onto it. And I think I re I reapproached wrestling as a, as a path to get me better prepared to potentially enter the military and then ultimately the SEAL program. Uh, so I, I got back into wrestling as a freshman in high school, whereas most of my buddies that I wrestled with in high school, uh, especially at the high school I went to, Mount Carmel, we had been wrestling since they were like three or four years old. Uh, so I was a little bit behind the power curve, but I saw wrestling as an opportunity to really galvanize uh, self-discipline uh, hard work, you know, self-motivation and, you know, just be able to commit to something that was extremely difficult and uncomfortable in order to prepare for the rigors of, of what I really aspired to do, um, which was to go into the military and, and ideally make it through the SEAL program. Now, how did you get on with, with you being way behind the curve? Because, I mean, you know, what, 14, 15 is, is kind of late to enter a lot of sports. Oh, so yeah. were oh, you yeah. able to kind of make up that distance, that ground? So my, my dad always preached the fact that I, I'm in control of how hard I want to work. You know, if, if I work harder and I'm, I become, I'm in better shape, I'm a fitter person than my opponent, 
uh, it's going to mean a lot. So for what I lacked in time in the sport and, and I'd say, uh, natural athletic talent. Cause I, I don't necessarily believe that I had a lot of natural athletic talent. I was like the kid that got benched a lot, uh, playing baseball and, you know, definitely was not very coordinated in that realm. Um, so I, I applied myself, uh, vigorously, uh, as a wrestler to training. You know, I, I got really into, uh, body weight training to start in like sixth, seventh, eighth grade. And then, as soon as I was introduced to weightlifting and, and running and everything else, I mean, I, I jumped into the deep end. I mean, my dad was, was so supportive and would, would work out with me as a young guy. And, uh, and then I found friends that were like just way into pushing themselves. So that was, I think the way that I was able to kind of narrow the, the divide, uh, between, you know, kind of the lack of exposure to the sport and the athletic ability, uh, you know, by just, applying myself to you know physical fitness and, and mental toughness see that's interesting because i think i had the same kind of thing i was an average sports person but whether it was playing football soccer you know and just still being fit 50 60 minutes into the game or whether it was the uh, the combat sports like if i could weather the mm-hmm. first <laughs> minute or two and not be unconscious then usually my endurance then carried me through so i, I can relate a lot yeah i have a, so i have a distinct memory of it, so my dad loved motivational slogans and characters like Vince Lombardi were like his hero, uh, one of his heroes growing up. So he used to have these slogans written in calligraphy on our on our walls down in the basement where we had our our gym and we we did a lot of we we originally had our gym in the basement we like until I like outgrew it and I had to like move into the garage but. Uh, one slogan from Vince Lombardi, I, I believe it's fatigue makes cowards of us all is, is something that really etched itself in, in my mind. And, you know, I, I knew that if I, you know, if, if I could be in better shape and, and just outlast other people that, you know, not succumbing to fatigue was just going to give me an edge, um, in, in whatever I decided to pursue physically. Absolutely. Well, one more area before we get to your career path. It's interesting when you go from a co-ed school system to, you know, just a, a boys' school. So what was that transition for you, you know, your own personal experience? Uh, you know, I mean, it was good for me. I, I if anything, it helped me focus. Uh, you know, I, I, I really, you know, from like seventh grade on, I, I wanted to be a SEAL. You know, I had heard about the SEAL team. So I'm like, that's what I want to do. And and if you ask friends of mine, it's almost embarrassing now, but they'll talk about how I, I always, you know, I talked about it. I wanted to do it. I was very kind of, uh, vocal about my desire to accomplish that goal. So I think leaving kind of the distractions of a co-ed, uh, environment and going into a highly competitive, uh, I mean, it wasn't a military school, but it might as well have been, it was a very athletic focused, all boys, Catholic high school, and, you know, top tier in athletics and football and wrestling, it, it was really good. It kind of removed a lot of distraction from my life. And, and I'm thankful for that. And, you know, it, I think it prepped me very well to go to the Naval Academy um, and focus on the goals that I had. And I think it, it prepped me very well in the SEAL teams to be focused on, or at least in BUDS, in preparation to try to get into the teams. It, it allowed me to focus intently on, on the goal. Now, what made you go the Naval Academy route? A lot of people go straight into enlistment, don't they? 
yeah, I think if I had it my way, I probably would have just enlisted. I, I, I had vocalized that with my parents and, you know, I, I, you know, I always wanted to be a good son. I, I wanted to do, uh, do, do things that made my parents proud and not that my parents wouldn't have been proud if I just went straight into the military, but you know, they had, they had worked really hard and sacrificed hard to put me into a pra- uh, private Catholic high school. So, uh, I had, you know, I did fairly well in school and they really wanted me to go to college. And, uh, and I said, okay, I, I, I I'm going to try to go to college, uh, first. And I knew that my best chances of getting a billet into buds, uh, was to go to the Naval Academy. I mean, the Naval Academy at the time that I went in, uh, probably accounted for like 50% of the officer billets, uh, in any given year. So I think we had you know, 16 billets. Uh, my year group in, in specific had about 15. We had a, a prior enlisted SEAL that was part of our class that was most likely going to step up and take one of those billets. So um, I knew that if I went to the Naval Academy, I'd have the best chance of being able to obtain a, an officer billet into, into SEAL training. Now, I heard you, I can't remember if it was Tim Tim's uh, podcast, Tim Ferris, or, um, oh my goodness, Ben Greenfield, have I got that right? Yep. Um, you were talking about how the Naval Academy actually prepared you well physically and mentally for buds. So, talk, oh, yeah. talk to me about that. Well, I mean, it's it it prepared me uh, physically and mentally because the competition was stout. I mean, I I was in a class where, and I think this is probably typical. You know, you go into the Naval Academy. There's probably you know, I mean, my numbers may be slightly off, but like eleven or twelve hundred. Um, guys and girls in a, in a freshman class, by the time you're seniors, maybe it's whittled down to like eight or 900 with people just failing out or deciding to leave. And as a freshman, there's probably several hundred guys that want to be seals. You know, they want to be special operations. So, uh, you're already in a group that's, you know, typically all high achievers, all athletes. And then you get a group within that high achieving group that wants to pursue something like the SEAL teams, you know, go to buds. And I, I'm always, I've always been a believer that, you know, you're only going to be as good as the people you surround yourself by. So if I, if I went into a scenario where I didn't have constant stress and pressure to perform in order to beat out the competition, I think I would have set lower goals. I mean, it just, it makes it easier when everybody around you is just a superstar and capable of doing things that, you know, maybe you're not even capable of. Uh, so the Naval Academy pushed me uh, just because of the fierce competition that I had amongst my peers to to get into BUDS. And, you know, from a mental standpoint, I mean, you know, it just, it, it kind of put me outside of my comfort zone every single day, you know, whether that was academically or, or physically, you know, I was always comparing myself to these tremendous athletes and extremely intelligent people And, uh, you know, and I had to really lean on my work ethic, you know, the thing that helped me succeed as a wrestler, you know, coming into the sport behind the power curve was exactly, uh, what helped me thrive in a, in a highly competitive environment, um, at school. Now, did you continue to rescue, uh, excuse me, wrestle in school? No, I, (laughs) no, I didn't. I, I, (laughs) I toyed with the idea of going, uh, to the Naval Academy and walking on, I, you know, I, I was an okay wrestler. I wouldn't frame myself as, uh, you know, I wasn't a state champ. I, I, I wasn't a state qualifier. Um, but you know, I figured, Hey, maybe I really love the camaraderie and the hard work 
involved in the sport. So I had I played with the idea. I ended up not doing that. And I did that namely because my objective was to, to find a billet into buds. And from my standpoint, I really wanted to get good at being a, an endurance athlete. Uh, and I, and I was enamored with uh, multi-sport racing just from watching like Eco Challenge and, and that type of stuff on television as a kid. And when I was at the Naval Academy, I, you know, the door was open to go out and compete in some multi-sport competitions in the surrounding states. So instead of going into wrestling, I, I focused all of my energy on uh, distance running, ultra distance running, and then ultra, ultra distance athletics, uh, namely in adventure racing. See, it's an interesting comparison because obviously one is very, you know, almost anaerobic in a sense, and then one is, you know, stretched out. And I, I did the, I mean, we're talking absolute, you know, white belt level, but a, a go rock recently. Um, yep. And you know, I've I've competed a, in a, a multitude of things, but never a ruck, never over like six hours. Um, sure. And you know, it was it was humbling because it showed me there's a completely different set of. Um, endurance a different place in your brain just different level of discomfort so how did that serve you how did that those much longer endurance events that i would assume would mirror buds hell week those kind of you know chapters in your life more closely than you know the few minutes on the mat yeah i mean i think that was the the mindset you know as i decided to switch from wrestling and and kind of uh transition to multi-sport um kind of ultra endurance stuff it was, there was a, uh, a, a definite focus on team and team dynamics within adventure racing. You know, you, you were racing on either a two, three or four person team. Um, and I didn't necessarily have that in wrestling, in collegiate wrestling, as far as, you know, my roommate was a collegiate wrestler at school and, and he could attest to it that, you know, the wrestling that he experienced in college was definitely more individual focused. Um, you know, the team dynamics that I saw in high school, like, you know, there's just like this deep fraternity or you were wrestling uh, to win as a team uh, to go down state. It didn't necessarily um, manifest like that in college um, as I saw it. So I, I wanted to be more part of a team. And the other thing is I, I just wanted something that was going to push me uh, to my limits. You know, I really, really had a drive to see how far I could push myself and adventure racing in particular it incorporated sleep deprivation, long distance travel, uh, uh, coping with some pretty uncomfortable situations, whether that be exposure to heat or cold, uh, chafing, um, kind of the fear of being lost in the woods and not knowing where you are uh, and it being dark and not having anything to kind of get you out of that situation except you. And, uh, and I like that. I, I think what really, uh, galvanized my commitment to adventure racing for, you know, the four years at school and some years afterwards was just, you know, the, the ability to kind of constantly test myself, um, to get into that space, that headspace that is really difficult to get into unless you are completely wiped out and sleep deprived. And I, and I found out that like, you know, I, I actually perform better. You know, I, I saw myself doing better in longer races because as soon as it started getting miserable, like I, I felt good. I wasn't the fastest, uh, you know, I wasn't the elite caliber triathlete, but when 
when people started to get cold and they started getting sleep deprived and they've been on the course for two, three, four days, I felt like the playing field was leveled and that my mental toughness that I had, I'd really focused on most of my life uh, started to, to surface and, and give me an ad- advantage in that scenario. Well, it seems like a lot of the special operations community I've had on kind of found themselves in the same place. Like they lent into the discomfort. Yeah. When you look back, were there any areas of your life up to that point that taught, you know, forged whatever it was, the mindset to be able to do that when so many of us would have tapped out by that point? You know, I I may have relayed this before, but I mean, there is, there are some clear instances in my young life where I felt deep regret and namely regret because I know I didn't push myself as hard as I could have pushed myself. And I kind of, I I fell victim to fear, you know, fear of not achieving. And the, I took the easy way out. I just kind of, I kind of quit. Uh, I took it easy on myself and, and kind of quitting in a, in a scenario. And there's one in particular where I was, I mean, it have been sophomore year. I was wrestling in our Catholic league tournament and you know, I, maybe I was wrestling against a guy that I was seated higher than, and I had an expectation that I was going to, you know, roll through this guy. And, uh, it turns out that I, I, I wasn't rolling right through this guy. Like it was, it was a very difficult match and I found myself, uh, losing. And I remember towards the end of that match kind of giving up and, it, you know, it, 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 it etched itself in my brain. I mean, the deep feeling of regret and dis- self-disappointment, you know, after that. And not just like me disappointing. My dad was there watching. I remember like, you know, yeah, there's there's regret and, and kind of feeling like I let him down. But the the regret of letting myself down is something that I'll never I'll never forget that moment. You know, I'm ta- I'm sharing it here today. I have a hard time remembering things <laughs> some days <laughs> that happened like last week. And I, I could tell you exactly what corner of the gym that match took place in, where I was, how I felt, uh, probably what clothes I put in and put on over my singlet and, and kind of could describe the feeling in the car ride home. And that feeling of personal regret and disappointment in myself was a massive driving force for me. I mean, it, it, I think that fueled, it fueled my desire to go into the SEAL teams to do something bigger than myself, to challenge myself and, and, and not take the easy path. See, I struggle with that now, having transitioned out of the fire service. <clears throat> I'll be completely transparent if we're, if we're sharing. And we did Murph, you know, Memorial Day. Mm-hmm. And uh, prior to this, I'd always done it in my fire gear, you know, the, as long as I've been a firefighter. And it's brutal. And then we get as far as we can. I have a problem with just overheating in the gear when we're doing it. And um, it can, just for some reason, push-ups have always been hard for me. I can pull up all blooming day and air squat and run and all that stuff. But the push-ups are the ones that slay me. So this year, I'm like, all right, I'm not a firefighter anymore. I've never done it with no gear. I'm just going to do it with a vest and shorts and t-shirt. Sweet. Like you said, mindset was, well, this is going to be easy. Um, Two-thirds of the way in, I had to drop the vest. I mean, I did the whole thing, put the vest on for the run. But yep. again, for the last, what has it been now? What's today? Friday. So the last four days, I can't stop thinking about taking that vest off. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when when yeah. that why is taken away, when you're not, you know, a firefighter anymore, you're not thinking, all right, what if I'm on that rig? 
it's 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 another challenge to refine that fire and, and that desire not to tap out and you know this this very week i had an event like that and it's i've been beating myself up the last few days yeah. so i can completely relate yeah i mean i i wanted to feel like i was at a disadvantage like i i actually thrive in scenarios and, and maybe it's because i i you know, I have such a, a deeply ingrained fear of letting letting myself down and fear of underachieving that I I actually appreciate starting at a disadvantage. You know, I, I like <laughs> I would rather be doing something with weight on me than, you know, slick. Uh, I'd rather uh, be in a race where it's going to be miserably cold or miserably hot because I know that it's starting to level the playing field and it's putting me at a disadvantage. And, uh, and I just, I, for some reason, it's like that handicap, it pushes me. The handicap is something that I, you know, I, I really lean on as something that drives me to do better, to push harder, to dig deeper. Now, when you, you graduated buds and you did all the training and you came out, which country did you deploy to first? I went to Iraq first. Uh, so that would have been summer of 2006. So a question I like to ask anyone who's, you know, seen combat, um, we, and I say we, I'm, I'm a civilian, I never, never worn the military uniform. We get given a polarized view on war, same as we get given a polarized everything, it seems like recently. Um, it's either a very pro-war, you know, let, kill them all, let God sort them out kind of lens, or it's a, they're all baby killers lens. What seems to be a reoccurring thing is when I ask these men and women that are actually out there, there's a very human perspective of what they saw. So I want to ask, you know, the, the kind of negative and then the positive side of this. So was there a moment when you got down, regardless of the politics, regardless of all the, you know, the reasons that we're told that when you set foot in that area, you saw whether it was atrocities to the, you know, the Iraqi people or whatever it was, it, it justified your personal reason, your team's reason for there outside of, oh, we're, you know, we're insert political statement here. Oh, it's a, it's a good question. You know, it, it it's going to force me to kind of really think back and, uh, and try to remember exactly how I felt. I mean, I can honestly say, you know, I had a deep commitment to the guys that I went overseas with first and foremost. I, I remember that like I had, you know, I had a feeling of overwhelming responsibility that I made sound decisions in in my role as a combat leader that would yield uh, a result that brings guys home alive. So that was always first and foremost. Um, uh, and I think that motivates that motivated me. It motivates a lot of guys that go into combat and. You know, that, that was my first experience was I'm going to go out, we're going to go on. I mean, I'll, I'll give you kind of a recollection of my first combat patrol. Uh, it, but I was like, okay, we're going to go out. We're doing a daylight patrol with a Marine Corps element and an Iraqi infantry uh, battalion at the time. We were doing like large formations, daylight formations into enemy controlled territory uh, north of the Euphrates River in, in Al-Ambar province. Uh, so totally out of my comfort zone. Uh top priority was keeping guys safe, keeping guys alive. Uh, I realized that it wasn't black and white very quickly. Uh, you know, it, it wasn't a bunch of, uh, enemy in, in black 
clothing with green bandanas, you know, and masked faces running around. It was it was normal people. It was people in, you know, shirts and pants and driving normal cars, uh, which which is not it's very different than in how the media portrays combat. You know, we think that it's, you know, good guys and bad guys on, you know, you know, towing towing the line and, and, and you know, confronting each other on a battlefield that absolutely wasn't the case. It was us patrolling through farm fields where people are farming or hurting animals. Uh, women and children are being shuttled from house to house, uh, to, to go do daily chores, uh, you know, maybe go to school. Uh, so the, the normalcy of life doesn't cease to exist in places where there's combat. And, uh, you know, the fragility of that situation and, and the uh, the craziness of that situation when you you kind of you try to transpose it on on what we see as kind of everyday life here and trying to imagine you know armed combat going on in our in our neighborhood here in the states you know it's this crazy concept right but that's that's exactly what I saw when I first went out in patrol like there was normal things going on um, and then all of a sudden, you know, we had, you know, we'd have an IED detonate behind us. You have automatic weapons fire. You're, you know, you know, moving into a, a hardened building to be able to, you know, protect yourselves and, and return fire. And, you know, it's it's this <laughs> kind of monotony of of daily life in a combat zone peaked by these very brief instances of violence and, and terror and uncertainty, uh, and then back to kind of normal, peaceful life, you know, cows and goats walking around and people going to the well to get water and going to school. And yeah, I mean, so that, that my, my initial impression was just kind of like, wow, like this is, this is different. This isn't, this isn't a final battle problem or field training exercise where we're patrolling into no man's land and, everybody out here is an enemy and we're going to go kill everybody. Um, you know, you quickly found out that it was, you know, the enemy rarely showed themselves blatantly. Um, you know, typically it was, they're part of the local population. You know, they, they did a really good job of just hiding, uh, amongst the, the innocents. And I think, you know, I'm proud of the way that we carried ourselves and we were able to execute combat operations, with with minimal, if any, uh, collateral damage to the civilian population, um, because it is far from an easy task, and and, and hopefully I'm I'm giving you an answer that is uh, remotely uh, in response to your question, but I'm trying to kind of dig into the feelings and kind of the initial impressions, uh, which I haven't really thought about in a long time, if ever. Yeah. Well, I mean, and so important for, for us, and I say us, to have this picture painted. And, you know, it's very easy to think, oh, we were at war with Iraq. We're at war with Afghanistan. No, we're not. You know, we're, there's these horrible people in these countries that not only are we fighting, but they're also terrorizing the Afghanis and the Iraqis, you know, and they're the ones that are really getting the blunt, the brunt of this. And you hear, you know, stories like, um, the things that someone was telling me about the rooftops where you think, oh, if someone's on a rooftop, that's a bad guy. And then you realize as an Englishman living in America, listening to a story from one of those countries, that that's where a lot of families go to hang out because it's so hot in their house. You but know, sleep. I mean, everybody. I mean, every every building we went into, if you went into that building at night uh, to clear it, to search it, whatever, everybody sleeps on the roof. You know why? Because they don't have air conditioning. 
for the most part. So they all sleep on the roof in the summertime because that's the coolest place to be. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's totally, I mean, it's totally just, you know, unlike anything that we see here in the States. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you think about how complex that must be for you, for everyone out there, you know, it's important that we understand that picture. What about moments of compassion, humanity that you saw while you were out there? Yeah. I mean, I, most of the time, even in a very kinetic environment, I mean, I, I would frame our 2006 deployment when I was a new guy, new officer in the SEAL teams as an extremely kinetic, uh, violent deployment. You know, it was the height of secretarian violence in Western Iraq. You know, you had, uh, you had Motad al-Sadr in Baghdad. You had, uh, you, you had a lot of other, you know, major players that were still alive and well and operating in Al-Ambar. And, I mean, I could tell you that, like, I spent most of the time interacting with people, you know, having tea with families that, you know, own the houses that we went into. I mean, we would go in and we would we would take stronghold positions, you know, for sniper overwatch uh, or just stronghold in the middle of a patrol um, in people's homes. And, you know, we were kicking the doors in and, you know, treating the people like they were criminals. We would go in, you know do what we needed to do to make sure we were safe. But a lot of the time was spent just interacting with people. And I mean, I got to, I did, I spent a lot of time interacting with the population, you know, via my interpreter and seeing kindness and hospitality from those people, you know, offering us tea, offering us uh hobus, uh, Iraqi flatbread. And, uh, I, I saw the same thing in Afghanistan too. You know, people are, you know, they're human beings still, you know, they have compassion, they have love, they want to be kind you know, most of us aren't evil people that want to go out and commit atrocities uh, or bully uh, people or assault children. Like that stuff is the rarity. Uh, so most of my interactions, you know, with both Iraqis and Afghans were, you know, typical reactions that human beings have with each other. You know, friendly conversation, sharing a meal, uh, seeing kids playing. I mean, you know, it's not like these places are free of children, right? I mean, I'm a parent now and, you know, there's, you know, there's just, you feel the same way about an Iraqi child as you do a U.S. child. I mean, it's, it doesn't make a difference. You, you see their innocence, you see their kindness, you get to watch that and all that existed over there. Uh, so, I mean, if anything, I mean, I saw, I saw the human side of, of combat far more frequently than I saw you know, what everybody imagines combat to be. Yeah, it's such an important perspective. And Jason Gardner, when when he was on, he told the story of the the children that were hit when the enemy mortared them, you know, and it's just, it's awful because, I mean, it would be like us being in, you know, a, a town park and all of a sudden explosions rip off, you know, and I, I even got a kind of very, very minute glimpse growing up in England when we had the, the troubles with the IRA and, you know, yeah. the bombings in the mainland there. You know, I used to have to sweep my car um, with a mirror because we were right next to a military base. And again, different things, but I mean, it's it's hard, I think, for the US to wrap their heads and, and, and the UK what would it be like to have a war zone in our country? And obviously Europe got a got a snapshot a lot more, you know, a few decades ago. Yeah. But yeah, it's an important perspective for us. Um, well, we're obviously going to talk about drug prohibition in a while. So while we're on this this chapter <laughs> of your life, something I also like to ask, because it's been interesting. Early podcast, first couple of years, it was kind of taboo with when I brought it up. The last couple of years, it seems like people are opening up now about this. 
from what I'm I'm hearing now, um, there there's an element of terrorism that's funded by the illicit drug trade. Which to mm-hmm. you know, my whole thing is well, if we don't have an illicit drug trade, we just have, you know, we keep addic- addiction in a medical community. We cut the head off the snake with with crime and terrorism as well. What did you see as far as whether it was Iraq or maybe more Afghanistan as far as funding terrorism through illicit drugs? Uh, so I, I can tell you on my Afghan deployment, it may have been just the time of the year that we were deployed because uh, I think we were post uh, poppy harvest and in the area that I was in uh, maybe maybe wasn't the most fertile uh, area in Afghanistan. <laughs> so they didn't see a ton of poppy on my deployment uh, and, and I didn't run into as much uh, uh, of the drug caches that other guys ran into. Um, but it's definitely something real. I mean, I know, you know, one of the things that would happen is the Taliban, you know, the Taliban were super savvy in the way they approach the local population. I mean, it, in my experience, you know, they tried to, tr- I mean, they, they ruled with an iron fist, so it was their way or the highway, but they typically would go in and try to subsidize, uh, like locals, like in villages. And the subsidy typically would be, Hey, instead of you growing, whatever, corn, other vegetables, fruits, whatever, to kind of sustain your living and your way of life. You know, we're going to, we're going to make sure you have grain and corn and stuff to feed your families and your village. But in, in exchange for that, you're going to grow poppy. You know, you're, you're going to become our workforce. And in exchange, we're going to give you food. We're also going to give you protection unless you show defiance to us and you start supporting the coalition forces, the Afghans and the U S and, uh, you know, Canadians and everybody else that was over there. Uh, and that that situation, we're going to make your life miserable. We're going to, you know, we're going to cut people's heads off and, and kidnap, you know, people from the village. Um, so I definitely, I mean, you know, it, it becomes a source of income, right? I mean, if there's, uh, there's a demand for those things, uh, and they're not regulated, uh, in a way that people have access to them, you know, it, 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 it it's black market and they're going to be, the value is going to be increased and there's going to be a tremendous amount of money that can be made. And if money can be made from it, it's going to continue to exist over there as a very lucrative business, as opposed to other crops that they could be growing. Um, so, I mean, I, I, that was my personal experience. I mean, I, I, you know, I know buddies of mine that, that ran into billions of dollars of street worth in, in black tar heroin, um, and, and other opiates, uh, while they were in Afghanistan. Um, so I, kn- I know it exists. I know it's it's thriving in southern Afghanistan. Yeah, it's just another interesting perspective. And we're going to talk about, you know, the, the the drugs that are legal as of now that are actually helping the very men and women that are defending this country. Um, one more area I want to touch before we kind of transition, you know, through your, your military career and out the other side. Um, you ended up working with Jocko and a lot of the guys that I probably saw at the muster this last week. So tell me about that interaction. I mean, awesome interaction. I mean, I, I, I'll, I've said it before and I'll say it again. You know, Jocko Willink was a, uh, a pivotal influence in my life as a young officer in the SEAL teams. Um, he was a sister troop commander to our troop in 2006. So I got to you know, we go through a portion of our workup together towards the end. Uh, and you know, I, I got exposed to jujitsu, uh, for a period of time because that's what you did as a, you didn't have a choice as an officer, you know, the, the junior officers 
showed up in the morning to uh, roll with Jocko and and everybody else. Uh, and I, I loved it. You know, it was my reintroduction to kind of combat sports in that I I hadn't really done that since I was wrestling in high school. Uh, so I appreciated that. Uh, and I, you know what, I just appreciated his uh, very pragmatic approach, simple approach to leadership, you know, kind of the baseline skills that could make you a more effective combat leader. Um, and that's what I, you know, that's what I was paid to do in the teams. You know, I was paid to be a leader. And, you know, you, you could get overwhelmed with all the things uh, that you think you need to be good at and you need to uh, do and you, you could you could over complicate the, the skill sets and and the tools you need to bring to bear as a leader. And I appreciated the fact that, you know, Jocko was able to instill very simple concepts that are universal in leadership. You know, they don't just apply to combat. They, they apply to leadership in general. And, and, you know, I got, I had a lot, a long period of time that I was exposed to that stuff and it really sunk in and it, it's really defined me as a, an individual and as a leader. And, you know, I think it's, I think it's awesome. I mean, what him and Leif have shared with the world in extreme ownership is just, I mean, it's a, that, that was the Bible. I mean, I, I, before I even read any of that, that, you know, when they put it into book form, I mean, I, I know it because I lived it. I mean, that became kind of the code that, that I, I used to navigate, you know, leadership, uh, in the SEAL teams. So, uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> I think I beat that, uh, horse to death. I mean, I really appreciate, uh, the lessons that I drew from, from Jocko. Yeah. Well, it was very humbling for me. Um, I had a real kind of wake up because they talk a lot about ego. You know, and one of the big things when he was on here the first time, I was still with my last apartment. I was, it was, it was the worst or a lack of leadership of, of the four that I worked for. So I, I got a spectrum. I'd seen some great ones, some not so great ones. But when you're in an environment like that, you, you're fully cognizant of the stresses of the shortcomings and you're trying to make a difference. But what I realized is it's very easy then to shirk your own responsibility because you just mm -hmm. assume it's everything else. And I kind of got there a little bit where I'm like, you know, yeah. I, and I was looking back going, oh, I remember this training where actually I did screw up and I didn't own it. So it was a great kind of reboot for me to look in the mirror again and, and check my own ego, especially when he was talking about, you know, if you've got two people, which ego, you know, how many egos can you control? And the answer was one. Like if you're with mm -hmm. a horrible leader with a giant ego, you can't really affect them at all, but you can no. affect your own ego. And that's a bitter pill to swallow, but it was a huge lesson for me. Um, so, you know, it was, it was a fantastic couple of days. Yeah. Well, I mean, hey, those, <laughs> that mindset applies uh, so prolifically to my life right now. Because I mean, yeah, I, I, I really embraced humility. I, I will say that humility was the number one characteristic and trait that was a value to me as a leader. But understanding that I am only in control of my thoughts. I mean, I can, I can control any situation by the way that I think about it, um, the way I react, uh, the way I either allow my emotions to take over or control those emotions and, and, and act appropriately, you know, that's the, that's all I can do. I can't change anybody. I can't, you know, I can try to influence, but ultimately people are 
they're sovereign individuals. They're going to, they're going to do whatever they want to do. Uh, so, you know, it, it kind of eases the burden when you don't have to worry about anybody else. You, you focus on, okay, I can control my thoughts and actions and, you know, I can't worry. I can't get anxious about, you know, everything else that could happen or how people can react. Absolutely. Well, I know another very powerful thing from the muster was the grief, you know, that was Mark Lee, uh, Seth Stone, um, Mike. Well, Mike, Mike Monsor. Mike Monsor, thank you so much. And then there was another SEAL that was um, very badly wounded who passed away a few years later. Ryan, Ryan Job. Ryan Job, thank you. Yep. Um, I, went, so, I went through buds with Ryan. You did. So, so that's, so that's the thing. So again, we're going to talk about the mental health as the facade of, you know, nothing bothers us. Well, all these Navy SEALs are up there that were tearing up telling these stories. That's what true masculinity is. And, um, uh, Mark Lee's mother was there that day too. I'm going to get her on the podcast at some point. Um, during your deployments, were there any moments, whether it was losing friends, whether it was an actual firefight that when you look back contributed then to, um, some of the challenges you had when you transitioned out? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I think the reason we're so effective overseas, and I think people are effective in in high-performance roles in general, is is an innate ability to compartmentalize well. And I, I was really good at compartmentalizing, as were all the guys that I served with. I mean, it allowed us to take emotion and put it aside and focus on objective action and making decisions that weren't clouded by emotion. So I'm, I'm thankful for that. But, you know, human beings can only compartmentalize so much. And, you know, I think it was the, the totality of all of the grief that I compartmentalized over the course of a lifetime. Um, but a lot of it for me happened, you know, you know, for basically from the moment, you know, I lost my dad at the beginning of my career in the SEAL teams, uh, through combat, years of combat, you know, losing guys like Mark and Mike, uh, to losing Brendan Looney, uh, who's a, another friend officer from the SEAL teams in 2010. And then, you know, ultimately losing my, I, I lost a younger brother in an inbounds avalanche in 2012 when I was on shore duty. So I had, you know, I was still compartmentalizing deeply at that point in time. You know, even with the loss of my brother, I, you know, I grieved for a short period of time. You know, obviously when, you know, you hear about somebody passing, you know, you grieve. Um, it's just a natural reaction. But I was very quick to shut all that down, lock it away, and start taking, you know, progressive action to solve problems. And and my, <laughs> my the actions that I was taking, you know, in retrospect, are really, I mean, yeah, it served a purpose. But I, you know, I was just numbing the pain. You know, I was distracting myself from, you know, deep loss and deep grief and. You know, it, it, it all caught up with me and, and I think it's probably the thing that catches up with, with most of the guys, you know, that I know, you know, from our community and in the veteran community in general is, you know, you can only compartmentalize so long before that bucket gets full. And when it fills up and it starts to spill over, it starts to manifest in ways that can be very destructive, you know, in your life. And, and it was destructive in my life in that, you know, I just stopped feeling I, I felt very apathetic about things that I had previously considered, you know, phenomenal, loving, awesome activities. And I, 
I just didn't really care. And I was, you know, probably distracting myself with work outside of the military as I transitioned, um, which was only further separating me from my family. And, you know, I, I, you know, I probably was drinking more than I should have been drinking. Um, you know, I, it, we all kind of fall into this situation where we're, you know, we're in kind of a pain avoidance, uh, scenario where we're trying to figure out ways to kind of mask and avoid the pain. So we just continue to drive on in our daily lives. And you can only do that so much before you need to address the deeper root problems. And, uh, and, uh, I, I definitely had to deal <laughs> with some of that, that deeper introspection and, uh, and, and it's never easy. It, it can be it probably, I mean, I could tell you it's probably the most difficult thing that I've done in my entire life. So was this, did you have this kind of realization when you were still in or was it after you transitioned out? Oh yeah. I mean, it was years after I transitioned out. Okay. So I what mean, made you decide to make the transition? And then also how was that? Because it seems like a lot of people, whether it's military, police, fire, struggle because you have your tribe, you're, you're part of something and you're making a difference yeah. in the world. And now all of a sudden you've handed in your ID and you're outside, you know, the, the, the yeah. headquarters that you trained in and you're not even allowed to walk in the door anymore. Right. Yeah. I mean, first off, it was an extremely difficult decision for me, you know, even with the loss of my brother and my wife getting pregnant. Um, you know, she was pregnant with our first right around the same time that my brother passed away. Uh, it was still a difficult decision. You know, I had gone to shore duty as a, a placeholder job to continue my career in Naval Special Warfare. Um, you know, I loved it. I loved the community. I loved the deep sense of purpose. And, uh, I made the decision to get out namely because, you know, I got rocked with uh, a major perspective shift, you know, watching, watching my brother, you know, leave us and seeing my wife pregnant with our first and realizing that, you know, my little brother is not going to be able to, to see his kids anymore. You know, at the time he had, uh, you know, my niece was only four years old, um, little girl and his son was, I think eight weeks at the time. And I just, I saw how much pain, uh, and grief and loss that brought to his family. And I just, I think part of me just didn't want that to ever be the case for my wife and, you know, my, my daughter, my unborn daughter, I just didn't, I just, I think that's where the association, you know, you know, really, uh, surfaced for me. And, you know, I, I made the tough decision to get out because I wanted to be there for my family, um, and take advantage of something that my, my little brother would never get to take advantage of because, you know, he was killed. So I decided to leave the SEAL teams and, uh, you know, with the, the, you know, under the guise that I was going to be more deeply committed and connected to my family and really take advantage of that. And James, to be honest, I just separated myself from my family even more. I rationalized time at work um, as something that I was doing for my family, yet it was keeping me away from my family and and keeping me from being able to really, you know, enjoy something that, you know, I probably wouldn't get to enjoy if I was still in a deployed, a deployable status. And, you know, I, I 
I think I was searching, you know, to some degree I was searching for uh, a new purpose. Um, I was looking for community in some way, shape or form, but I, you know, in a, I think I actually ran away from community more than embracing it. You know, when I left the, the military, I thought I needed to prove myself again and I needed to reinvent myself. And I walked away from a lot of friendships and, and the support of the SEAL community to try to prove to everybody else that I could be something other than a Navy SEAL. And yeah, now, you know, I, it, it's so clear that I... I ran away from the one, the thing that brought me so much happiness and so much joy, you know, that deep sense of connection and community, um, is, has been something that I've found recently and it's made a world of difference. And, you know, purpose for me shifted from, you know, taking guys overseas into combat to, you know, being a loving friend, uh, to the guys that, you know, are, have transitioned out alongside me, um, and being a, a loving husband and a loving father and, and, you know, really filling a new role that's no less important than the role that I filled when I was in the SEAL teams as a combat leader. Well, there seems to be a balance as well. Um, some of the men and women I see struggle are the ones who have, they've, they've, ultimately identify with the avatar that is the firefighter, the police officer, the, you know, the, mm -hmm. the seal. Um, and that purpose that led us into those professions in the first place was almost lost. And we became this, this caricature of, you know, th this is, this is who we are. This is what we are. And it seems like the ones that transitioned well were the ones that had other tribes and, and realized that purpose and carried it on. Um, Ryan Parrott's a perfect example. I mean, he struggled too, but he, you know, he's another one that's out there helping you know, an immense amount of people, not only in the SEAL community, but in the first responder space too. Um, Dan Cirillo, another one, you know, again, mm -hmm. huge, huge struggle when he first transitioned out. And again, he's working with the same community. So when you first came out, like what field did you find yourself in? Uh, so I found myself in commercial real estate, which is about as far from being a Navy <laughs> SEAL as possible. <laughs> um, I mean, granted, it's a competitive industry. It takes a lot of self-motivation and, and hard work. And you got to be an A-type personality to you know have a, uh, a decent chance of success. Um, but, it, but I was doing that. I think I, I just wanted to reinvent myself. And, you know, I totally understand what you're talking about. A lot of us do get attached to kind of the 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 fact that you know hey i'm a i'm a seal so i only feel comfortable being a seal and that's all i'm ever going to be when in reality the way i see it now is yeah i'm i'm still the same person you know i was a seal but i didn't love being a seal just because i was in the seal teams i loved being a seal because i was around other guys that i truly loved and cared about and i might have not told them that in, in the moment while we were serving, <laughs> I might, I, I can guarantee I wasn't as kind of emotionally vulnerable, but you know, I, I stayed in the SEAL teams for the time that I did. And I, and, and it was tough for me to leave the SEAL teams because I had true fraternity with the, the guys. I had true brothership with the guys that I served with. Uh, SEALs are not SEALs. I, I just, I felt a deep sense of connection and, and that feeling of belonging and connection and community is awesome you know it and and just because i'm uh, you know i feel that and it and i feel that most frequently with you know guys i served with in the seal teams 
doesn't mean that I'm going around beating the drum that, you know, Hey, I was a seal. Therefore I can rest on my laurels and, and I'm just hanging out with seals. No, I, I've, I've gotten very comfortable with the fact that, you know, I'm hanging out with friends. I'm hanging out with dear friends that I love and care about and would do anything for. And there was never any reason for me to run from that. Um, you know, I, I, to reinvent myself, I didn't need to separate myself from, from those that I spent time with in the SEAL teams. Yeah, and I think that's that's the thing that I see in in the fire service and in my own personal example. Like, ego-wise, it was hard to take off the uniform, the magic pants, as I call them, the sexy firefighter pants, and, uh, you know, walk away from that profession. But the the whole point of this podcast is exactly the same reason why I became a firefighter. And so, you know, I think I can see how if you were in a group that ultimately was trying to make the world better, um, commercial real estate maybe just didn't feel like it was on the same path, you know? <laughs> so, but another area um, that I see a lot even within our profession is when m- mental ill health starts to manifest one of the under-recognized coping mechanisms is just busyness. So you'll see a lot of men and women sign up for all the overtime, have side gigs, and like you said, become a worse parent, a worse husband or wife, not realizing it. So when you came out, is, is that what happened? Did you fill all your time with the sales yeah. side? Yeah, 100%. You ask my wife, she would tell you I was gone all the time. You ask close family, they said that you know it was actually concerning that I was gone so much, even when I had a young daughter. Um, but yeah, I, I was trying to distract myself. I didn't realize that at the time, but I was distracting myself from all the things that I had compartmentalized over, you know, a lifetime, but namely a lot of loss, a lot of grief, um, a lot of sadness, uh, that, you know, frankly was scary to face. You know, I, I, I feared facing that and it, (laughs) it's never easy. I can tell you though, right now I feel more comfortable embracing, you know, those emotions that I used to fear uh, than I ever have in my entire life. So what was the the anchor point for you, the turning point where you went from suppressing to actually having the courage to acknowledge and then start on that journey healing? Uh, well, I, I think I had to hit bottom for me, or at least close to bottom, where I felt pretty destitute and I felt destitute, but I wasn't feeling much of anything. And, you know, I, I just got, went on a path uh, to find solutions that weren't just masking agents, but rather actual solutions to address the deeper issues. And and for me, that wasn't, you know, just leaning on pharmaceuticals like uh, an antidepressant or a sleep aid or, you know, opiates. Um, you know, a lot of that stuff is prescribed very freely. Uh, within the medical system. And, you know, I wanted to figure out if I could find another way. Um, so I, you know, I've spoke, you know, at length about kind of this path uh, with others, you know, but I, I found uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation was an alternative to uh, serotonin drugs. Uh, it worked for a time period, but it was temporary. It was more of a masking agent in, in my opinion. Um, you know, granted it did provide some relief. So I'm, by no means am I like bashing any of these things. I just recognized for me that they weren't a, a deeper solution. They were just something that was going to mask the the symptoms. And I think in that process, I, 
I became a bit more vulnerable because I, I ran into other guys that I had served with, uh, in pursuing some of those treatments. And, you know, we shared with each other. And when you share with each other, you realize that you're not, you're not broken and you're not the odd man out. You know, other people are suffering with the same stuff that you're dealing with. So that kind of opened me up to start. And then I, I'll tell you that I, I started talking more about my struggles, uh, which was good because I think it primed me for what I would ultimately come to find as a, <laughs> I think more of a solution than anything else out there. And, uh, you know, that was, you know, ultimately was, uh, my experiences with psychedelic medicine. And, you know, I was introduced to that in casual conversation with a handful of guys that I trust and respect from our community that had retired or gotten out because of issues, you know, medical retirement. And, uh, you know, they were courageous enough to share their stories and the impact that those experiences had on them, uh, as it relates to, you know, finding some deeper healing and, and really starting to deal with, with the deeper issues that were the root cause of the symptoms they were experiencing. And I think it came down to, having dinner with a very close friend of mine that I had served in combat with. Uh, and I saw prolific change after he had come back from a retreat, uh, you, you know, where he, you know, he had taken a psychedelic medicine and, um, you know, done a ton of prep work, deep preparation and, and, you know, came back from that. And he was just a different person. I mean, the way I would frame it is that he was a version of him that I don't think I ever saw. I, in that I saw happiness, I saw like true joy. Uh, I didn't see as much guardedness and I saw, you know, just a light vulnerability and, and I wanted that. And it was enough to convince me to, to get introduced to, you know, the, the nonprofit that, you know, made that happen and allowed him to go, uh, unfortunately out of the country to a place, you know, where, you know, that therapy is legal, uh, because a lot of these things, uh, you know, are illegal here in the United States. And, uh, you know, I think we're making a vast amount of progress right now in embracing, you know, various psychedelics, um, as, as a healing modality for mental health and all, all kinds of other, uh, ailments that people are dealing with. But, you know, you know, I got, I got introduced to the nonprofit that, that made it happen for me and was able to go outside of the country and, and have, um, my experience and, you know, James, it, it changed my life. Um, and it continues to change my life as I volunteer my time to go support those retreats. It just continues to give me back the community that I thought I lost when I left active duty. And, you know, my, to be able to sit there and, and support and, and help during retreats where other guys are finding, finding that healing is, is probably more gratifying than actually taking a psychedelic and having my own personal experience. It's like, it's, it's giving me something back that really was the driving force behind, you know, why I became a SEAL in the first place. Yeah, well, that's another common denominator that I see on here is people go through their own dark path. And then when they storytell, the other side 
it's like a Pied Piper effect. And I mean that in a positive way, you know, where, where it's everyone else saying, Oh shit, I thought I was on, I was alone. I thought I was weak. I thought I was broken. It's like, no, we all are. We're all, <laughs> we're all fucked up. That's why we're doing these professions. Um, but, uh, you know, and then there's elements of childhood trauma. My God, yep. I was, my eyes were open at how many people wearing uniform have a pretty horrific early chapter of their life. And that was never addressed at the front door. For and, sure. So, and I've got people, who have said on, you know, on mic, like Jeff Nichols and Dan Cirillo talking about their experiences at Ibogain. Um, and there's others that have told me off mic, you know, from similar communities. So, you know, I'm hearing all these things from these uber alpha elite operators, you know, that this is working. And then you add the TBI element in, um, as we said, the compounding effect of both. There are so many, um, you know, healing outlets out there. But if this isn't in the toolbox, we're, we're ignoring a huge, huge, you know, healing modality. So kind of walk me through, if you don't mind, kind of where sure. your, where your darkest place was and then what your experience was down there as far as the, the treatment down there, meaning geographically. Well, I mean, Hey, the, the darkest place for me was, was not, not feeling you know, not feeling happiness, not feeling sadness, not feeling anything. I wasn't in touch with myself. And, and that's scary because when, when depression starts to creep in and you're not used to feeling it, that's when things get destitute and you don't know how to deal with it. And it becomes overwhelming to the point where, you know, the, the apathy can, it's not like the intense emotion of sadness. It's like the apathy that drives you know, irrational decisions. And, uh, you know, I just felt lost. You know, I didn't, I didn't feel purpose. I didn't feel like I had anything that was really driving me, um, in life. And, and, you know, that's scary, you know, and and it's, it is something that a lot of guys will share with me, uh, you know, prior to really taking ownership of, uh, of themselves and trying to, to, to find a healing path. Um, you know, I, one thing that I, I, people have told me and I will share with other people is that, you know, we are the medicine, like we are the thing that we're the only thing that can heal ourselves. You know, there's no, there's no drug, there's no psychedelic, there's no medicine, whatever you want to call it that can do the healing. You know, I think all these things are doing for us, uh, is cracking the door open a little bit for us to start taking a look inside and the real work is us digging in and and really confronting the stuff that we're scared of and 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 i've seen a lot of guys express fear uh when when the concept of going inside and and kind of uh unearthing all the stuff that we've buried away for so many years is, is the topic on the table and uh you know, reality is we're, you know, the guys, myself included, when, when, when I started to feel healing and I started to feel better, it's because I was doing it. I was confronting it. I was just given the opportunity via, you know, Ibogaine and, and 5-MeO-DMT um, in, in that controlled setting, you know, with, you know, surrounded by phenomenal, amazing people um, with a a lot of preparation, I was given the opportunity to start to confront stuff myself and heal myself. And, and that's something that I, I can't say enough 
uh, as these modalities start to permeate the world is that, you know, you can't rely on anybody else to do the work for you. You need to do the work yourself. And it all starts with your preparation. It starts with your willingness to be vulnerable, to look inside and actually make things happen. Uh, so, so in essence, you're, you are taking ownership, you know, you know, you, you can't just, uh, shirk, uh, the responsibility and, and say, Hey, I'm going to go down and do this and somebody else is going to heal me or something is going to heal me. You know, I'm going to heal myself. That's the kind of mindset that I went into it with. And, you know, the guys that have really, you know, embraced that healing, um, you know, find that same level of ownership. Yeah. I know Jeff Nichols, you know, he, he talked about his experience and I think the first dose they gave him, it didn't work on him, you know, and he well, obviously had a, a pretty, he was very, very, um, honest about his uh, opiate addiction and you know yeah. he's a he's a you know athletic phenom as well so for whatever reason his physiology and it was the second dose but yeah when he talked about that I mean like you said it, it it's not a ride at Disneyland when you start taking this stuff you know <laughs> I mean physically you know I know there's there's a lot of kind of physiological reactions but psychologically as well there's a lot of courage um, that's needed. However, whether it's this, whether it's uh, MDMA-led counseling that I had uh, Dr. Ben Sessa from the UK, they're doing that. What it shows to me is just some of the, like you said, this compartmentalizing, the, the box is so strong that they just can't access it normally. So like you said, it's not a magic pill, but it appears to be a way to remove those barriers so you're actually able to go to that place and face those fears, you know, challenges, whatever it is. Yeah, it definitely brings, uh, <laughs> it softens the armor, um, especially when you're talking about extremely powerful psychedelics like Ibogaine uh, and 5-MeO-DMT. And, and I, and I don't want to, uh, I don't want to rank them because, you know, all of these things can be extremely powerful. And, and I could tell you that like psilocybin and, and LSD and, and some of the other classic psychedelics can be equally as powerful or more powerful. So they all need to be seen, you know, in, in a, in a light that is just complete reverence of the power that these things, uh, bring to bear. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it is, it definitely softens the armor. Uh, but I've seen, <laughs> I've seen people that maybe are reluctant to have gone down or were kind of forced uh, in a way to to kind of participate, but not really truly ready and willing to to kind of embrace some healing and do some work themselves. And and you'd be surprised how uh, <laughs> how strong uh, the resolve is to hang on, you know, to to hang on to that armor and and not completely um, open up. And, and be willing to embrace, uh, you know, kind of your true self is, you know, people can hang on. Um, and that's why I'd say it's, you know, you have to be willing, ready and willing yourself uh, to participate. And, you know, no one can ever force you. You're never going to convince anybody. And I think it'd be the wrong thing to do is trying to convince somebody to go down and do this. You can, you can provide it as an offer. You can share, uh, a positive experience and and that typically will will help somebody make the decision for themselves but they need to make that decision ultimately yeah now another thing with psilocybin i've heard that's the only compound i think that they found that actually appears to reverse the damage from tbis uh psilocybin that is yeah well i mean so psilocybin i know uh vets 
you know, some vets, Veterans Exploring Treatment Solutions, nonprofit that's doing a lot of the work in this space with uh, with Naval Special Warfare veterans. Uh, I think there, there's talks right now of the organization doing some collaborative uh, uh, work with studies that are looking at psilocybin um, for TBI uh, as an anti, you know, kind of combat neuroinflammation. Uh, but I, I will tell you that, you know, Ibogaine, um, from a physical standpoint, you know, there's there's a lot of people that think that, you know, and, and I mean, I, I agree with this, that there's, it combats inflammation, you know, neuroinflammation, um, and has a pretty prolific detoxifying effect um, and promotes neurogenesis. So, you know, I, that, that, you know, that has been a, a focus uh, for vets is it's not, I mean, the psycho-spiritual side of this and dealing with kind of the deeper trauma and, and the compartmentalization issues and trying to feel again is a major part of this. But we're also looking at this from a physical healing standpoint, you know, trying to reduce uh, inflammation in the brain. Um, that is absolutely, you know, you know, part of the problem. You know, you know, we're looking at, you know, veteran suicide and a big part of veteran suicide is, you know, exposure to blast concussive injury and a unique type of concussive injury that comes from blast waves that damages the brain, um, in a different way than maybe blunt force trauma from, you know, combat sports or football or rugby, uh, and it, and it has led to a very particular type of kind of scarring and trauma inside the brain that has been uh, shown to be correlated with with suicide in, in a lot of cases. So, you know, the the ability to combat kind of the physical damage to the brain uh, and also to be able to confront <laughs> like the physical damage to the soul, right, that that we all deal with um, is kind of the one two punch that that we we see in these modalities. Yeah. Well, one thing I hear over and over again, it's not demonizing the VA, but a common denominator, and I think this is the same in the civilian world too, is a lot of times depression, anxiety are just medicated. And, you know, again, that's, mm -hmm. that's a Band-Aid. So are there any powerful success stories that resonate with you that you've seen, obviously not mentioning names, but um, of people that were in a very dark place, maybe this was their, their last ditch before yeah. taking their own life, which I've had friends that have, have yeah. been exactly there where this was the life-saving intervention? Yeah, 100%. I mean, I, I could tell you it's, it's, you would be surprised how many guys have opened up, you know, in this process, you know, when they've actually come down and started committing to the therapy and the prep work. Uh, and then even the post kind of integrative coaching and that where they've opened up and said that, hey, I've, I had a gun in my mouth or I had contemplated my own suicide and this was my last ditch effort. If this wasn't going to work, then I, uh, a high probability that I would have taken my own life. Um, and I have very close friends of mine that have, I have very <laughs> people that are extremely close to me. Um, <laughs> dude, it, it's, it's overwhelming emotionally because I, I, it breaks my heart to hear and to know that guys that I love so deeply were that close to taking their life and to hear them say that this work has given them an opportunity to see love and see how beautiful life is. I mean, that, that, that fills me up. I mean, it keeps me committed to this. It's dropped 
it's allowed me to drop all the barriers of fear associated with judgment related to this stuff because it's new and unique and you know it's not it's not the norm you know it's not the standard treatment um i don't care at this point you know because i i just want to pe- see people enjoy their families and enjoy the rest of their lives especially after sacrificing so much in service to this country there's no reason that people should be taking their lives um and suffering because they don't have access to this type of work. Uh, that's the most important thing that I do. You know, it's right up there with being a parent to my kids. And I, 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 I will keep doing it, you know, and I will keep being a voice, uh, an advocate, uh, for the responsible use of, of, of these substances to heal, you know, deep wounds that, you know, we haven't done a good job of, of, of healing and finding ways to heal thus far. Well, I mean, your your reaction, I'm sorry to, to bring that out of you, but I mean, that speaks volumes. <laughs> oh, I hate, you know? I appre- James, I appreciate it. You know, every time that I have that reaction, it, it for me, it just confirms that I am, I'm healing. I'm, I'm a different version of myself. Me three, four years ago, the concept of tearing up, especially on a public platform, <laughs> wouldn't do it. I would have choked them away. I would have. I would have. I would have not allowed myself to feel. I, I feel so deeply now, and uh, it's a gift. I feel so blessed. <laughs> well, I mean, but that's that's just it. So we, my previous department to the last one that I worked at, we lost two firefighters now to suicide just within the last month, month and a half. We had that murder-suicide in L.A. the other day. Um, in the town that I'm in, we've had overdoses, we've had suicides of, of, of firefighters. So this is why I get so passionate about mental health, about addiction, about you know the drug prohibition is because I see the success. I hear Dan, Jeff, you know, you yeah. <laughs> talking about this and, you know, and then you move because you see so many other people that you love yeah. being saved, for lack of a better word. Yeah. And so what drives me crazy is, you know, when you reverse engineer prohibition in, in general, it comes off the back of the epic fucking failure of alcohol prohibition. It's on the back of racism and hate when you really look into it. And, you know, we've had a, 100-year longitudinal study that shows that it's absolutely horrendous. And as a firefighter paramedic, I see it. I see the overdoses. I see the families broken. I see the drug wars. I see all that stuff. And, yep. you know, most first responders do. It's a hard sell the law enforcement because they've been asked to enforce these laws. So they're the, they're the toughest audience that I speak to normally. But to me, decriminalizing addiction allowing these kind of therapies to happen on American soil, allowing stem cell therapy to happen on American soil and to stop treating addiction as a crime and treat it as a mental health issue. 100%. I think we changed the fucking world. I mean, and, totally. I, and I get so angry slash passionate because when it's put out there, it's the same knee jerk. Well, it's stories like this. And thank you so much for telling yours yeah. that we need to hear. If the men and women who fought and watched their brothers and sisters die for this country need to go overseas to get their their bodies and minds back to where they need to be that's a fucking disgrace and that needs to be changed yeah no i <laughs> hey i mean i i fell into the category of the naysayers you know most of my life you know i never 
never done an illicit drug. You know, I, I didn't, I, I didn't even smoke cigarettes or chew tobacco and, 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 you know, not dipping as a seal is kind of like <laughs> heresy. I'm, I'm total, <laughs> yeah, total anomaly, right? It is heresy. Uh, but yeah, I fell into that category and it's just deep programming, you know, you know, you judge what we don't know. We don't understand. And I, I am a believer now because you know, the, these things, they're the furthest thing from a destructive, illicit drug. You know, I, you know, a, they're not addictive because the work that you do that these, these things open you up and allow you to do is not easy. It's the most challenging thing that I've ever done. And I've, I've, I've gone through buds. I've gone into combat. I've done very difficult things in my life, confronting my own demons and learning how to feel and, and become, you know, kind of that innocent, loving version of myself that I think we all start out as, as kids is the toughest thing that I've ever done. Absolutely. And you know, I can tell you right now, the, <laughs> I have a lot of friends that are law enforcement and especially over the last year, year and a half, I have watched so many of them struggle, you know, in the environment, trying to do a job that is extremely dangerous, extremely stressful. Um, and now, you know, they're under attack for, you know, anything, you know, any type of, uh, action they take to, to do their job. And, and I'm not saying that, you know, uh, you know, carte blanche, like, uh, uh, you know, no law enforcement officer has ever done anything wrong. Well, that's, that's absolutely not the case. And he, everybody makes mistakes, every, every profession, but the stress and the absolute trauma that, they, that, you know, our law enforcement have endured this last year, year and a half is horrific. And I know there, there's so many of my friends that I, I would love to have, you know, at least be able to explore some of these modalities, um, to begin to heal, uh, before, you know, they start to fall victim to the destructive patterns that I've seen happen, you know, all too often. Um, you know, they deserve it. You know, they, you know, our first responders, you know, put their lives at risk every single day. Uh, you know, just like the veteran community and, you know, these things should be opened up to heal, you know, those that have protected this society for so long. Yeah. What even, you know, take some of the, the, the gray area, you know, what calls that we've seen on, on video. So you have the ones that are black and white, you know, the, the, uh, the, 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 um, George Floyd and, and Taylor and some of those where it seems pretty cut and dry that that was an epic, you know, mistake. But then you have a lot of the, the gray area ones too. And the, the, the conversation that doesn't seem to be happening as well is what are we doing that is creating such violence and such crime on our streets that we even need yeah. police in tactical gear? And it, it always goes to the gun argument. No one wants to go to the mental health argument or even the drug prohibition argument. If we yeah. don't have an illicit drug trade, if all our addicts became medical patients and they went <laughs> through addiction counseling and psychological counseling like they do in Portugal, and I interviewed the guy who spearheaded yeah. that, so it's not, oh, I heard. No, I sat with the guy. Then, to me, so much of the violence that I've seen in my career wouldn't exist. Like, there wouldn't be the option to sling dope on the on the corner because that's not a market that's valid anymore. Agreed. So, then you would have funding for 
jujitsu in the police force, two, two to a car. I mean, all these things. So that would be a, a force multiplier in there. So the yeah. removal of drug prohibition would not only make our communities safer, our young men and women less likely to enter into the criminal world in the first place, therefore less violence on police and less violence by police. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I mean, you and I spoke offline about this, uh, I think, when we were first introduced. Like, addiction is a mental health issue. You know, we need people should be given the opportunity to heal from it, not thrown into uh, the prison system to further deteriorate and then have the, the rest of their family suffer uh, suffer deeply because of that. You know, you're destroying households. You're destroying... You're, you're, you're beginning inter, you know, multi-generational trauma by, you know, that's going to destroy entire families and, and, and lineages because we don't give people an opportunity to heal. And, and when I see something as effective as Ibogaine, um, and granted, I will say, hey, Ibogaine, it's not the end-all be-all, and there's risk profile associated with it, but I will always counter that with if you are an addict, and you're going to potentially die one day because you're going to overdose or you're going to get thrust into the prison system because you, you know, you're addicted to that drug. You know, what other choice? Why not? You know, why not give something a chance that has the best track record to date to counter addiction and give people a chance to start healing themselves? I mean, it seems like it's a no brainer. I mean, I'm looking at this just objectively. I'm like, yeah. Something works three, four, five times better than the 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 next best alternative. Uh, is sign me up. If I'm suffering in that capacity, I'm I'm gonna I absolutely do that. You know, because why why wouldn't I? Yeah, exactly. And then you reverse engineer back to terrorism. You know, imagine if there wasn't the the demand in the West for the illicit drug trade, because again, it was empowered back into the medical community. Well, in theory, opium wouldn't be of any value to Al Qaeda or the Taliban or anyone else trying to improve yeah. their revenue for terrorism, you know? So it, yeah. I know it sounds very simplistic, but ultimately it sure. is. The core of it is. It's just about, you know, a government having the balls basically to say, look, enough is enough. We've tried it this way. And, you know, drug prohibition, from what I understand, began in the US and then the pressure kind of went from, uh, from oh god i'm forgetting the dude's name now um the one that initiated it to australia the uk and so it was you know we didn't have that in england yeah. until we were pressurized from from the us so we can you know undo the damage and we we learned you know we, we saw we gave it a chance it didn't work our prison systems are swelling let's yeah. you know let's change the way we do it so yeah it's and it's such a powerful perspective though hearing it from one of the most elite special operators on the planet so you know it's people like you that we need to hear it because you can be a kind of hippy dippy dude saying i think we should legalize drugs and people roll their eyes and yeah. just disregard it but when you're saying hey i had navy seals that were about to take their own life and this was the treatment that worked and we had to go overseas for it then this shit needs to change yeah Our, I, I, hey i stand ready uh <laughs> to to hold my position if, if anybody wants to argue, but you know, I'm not going to stand by idly and watch friends of mine kill themselves, uh, because they're suffering and they don't have access to something that could heal them or, or give them the opportunity to heal themselves. So yeah, I, it is only, you know, I, I, I definitely have shed that fear and, uh, I'm only doing 
I'm only doing my friends a disservice by by sitting in the shadows and and being meek about my support for this. And and that's frankly why, you know, when Marcus and Amber Capone asked me to join the board uh, for Veterans Exploring Treatment Solutions, I said yes, um, resoundingly, because it's it's if if telling my story and and being there uh, for others to 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 learn from and maybe hopefully inspire some guys to kind of you know, take the leap of faith and, and find some healing and take ownership of themselves. Well, you know, I'm, I am honored to be able to sit in that position. Beautiful. And just it popped in my head, Harry Anslinger was the uh, father of prohibition. Yep. So everyone listening, if you don't know who that is, Google him, you'll see he's a shit bag. And <laughs> if you want to do some, <laughs> you know, some social justice stuff, that would be life changing. Um, so you mentioned that. So where can people um, learn more about veterans exploring treatment solutions? Oh, so vetsolutions.org is the website. Um, and if you Google Veterans Exploring Treatment Solutions, uh, I'm pretty sure you'll find it. Uh, nonprofit started by my good friend Marcus Capone and his wife Amber. Um, you know, the mission for, for vets is to provide grant funding, uh, you know, for right now, you know, focused on NSW veterans, combat veterans to be able to go and find healing through psychedelic therapy uh, in places where it's legal. Um, and in addition to that, research and advocacy, you know, we're partnering with major organizations um, like Stanford um, to study Ibogaine, uh, other organizations to study psilocybin, you know, to really kind of get the science, uh, continue to push the science to back these treatments. And then, you know, advocacy, they've, They've really done a phenomenal job partnering up with, you know, people from both sides of the aisle politically to to advocate for, um, you know, better drug laws, <laughs> you know, decriminalization and responsible, um, you know, permeation of these these treatments into uh, the U.S. Uh, in the U.S. medical system. So they've done phenomenal work, and uh, you know, I'm honored to be part of it. You know, they've. They got this thing going. I think to date have treated over 300 soft uh, veterans. And, uh, you know, I'm a living example of how it can change your life. You know, it's changed mine and it's changed. It's changed the lives of so many of my friends and it's saved the lives of so many of my friends. So um, I couldn't be prouder to be part of that. Beautiful. Um, so another organization you're a part of is the C4 Foundation. And if I'm right in understanding, it's kind of almost like the proactive side. So you're trying to Correct. give operators and their families the tools before they get to maybe a darker place. So tell me about that. Yeah, I mean, James, I, you know, I talk about how important community and connection is, uh, you know, in my life. And, you know, it's the thing that has brought me happiness again. And, you know, C4 Foundation owns a, a, a ranch outside of San Diego, 560 plus acre ranch, and the mission is to to give families, active duty NSW families, to connect, uh, to build that that's that mutually supporting environment, to be able to help each other through the tough times, uh, to have the support network there, you know, start to struggle, you know. So it's a beautiful nonprofit. Um, it named after Charles Humphrey Keating, the fourth, uh, friend that was killed in Mosul, Iraq back in 2016. And, you know, I'm, I feel blessed to, to work with his family. You know, I'm very close with his dad, uh, and his widow. And I, 
you know, I love them to death and, you know, they're just continuing to serve this community. You know, they're, they lost a, uh, a loved one. Uh, you know, he died in service to this country and, and, and it's just humbling for me to watch them continuing to serve, uh, and honor his, his memory, um, by providing something that's so needed, uh, within the NSW community. And where can people find them online? Yeah, so c4foundation.org. Uh, and, you know, if you look up Charlie Keating, uh, Chuck Heavy, you know, it's 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 very easy to find. And, you know, both of these organizations are on Instagram uh, if you look them up. But, uh, yeah, I mean, that's where I'm committed on the philanthropic side of things. It, it is really a, a proactive approach in the C4 Foundation and then the most effective approach solution in my mind in in the work that vets is doing right now beautiful well you mentioned as well another kind of well not organization but business that you're in now is protect so tell yep. me about that and then please expand on the the uh suntan kind of you know, skincare protection as well because i'm always curious when it comes to that <laughs> if we should be as terrified of the sun or if maybe some of the products we were putting on our skin in the past were contributing to some of the issues that we were seeing. Yeah. So y'all start with sunscreen. I mean, our company protect, uh, you know, has a full line of NSF organic zinc oxide sunscreen, uh, in the last few years that have just shown, you know, how destructive uh, chemical sunscreens uh, are to not only your physical health, but also to the environment, you know, killing coral, um, but also at the same time, um, disrupting people's endocrine system. So, uh, you know, yeah, we, we have a we have a healthy sunscreen um, to help combat those issues. Uh, but, you know, the the brand has its you know, genesis from, you know, my own personal struggles, you know, with trying to become a healthier, you know, more well version of myself and you know outside of sunscreen which is just a tool uh that we offer to get people outside you know enjoying the outdoors a little bit more um we have a full line of of nutritional supplements uh, you know we, we have a full line of liquid packs that you add to water and you know they they serve a number of different uh uh missions from a wellness standpoint but but ultimately they're they're getting people to drink more water and you know hydration or proper hydration has been key to to me feeling better and and the other component to the brand is is getting people to sleep better um you know hi, proper hydration helps with sleep and and we also have a a sleep supplement as well um that uses L-theanine uh, valerian root and GABA um as our kind of active ingredients so uh you know we're just we're trying to give people simple routines, uh, simple quiver of solutions. All right. Well, the first of the closing questions I love to ask, is there a book that you love to recommend that can be related to what we've discussed today or something completely different? Oh, man. I mean, there's so many good ones that I've read recently. Um, I mean, I so there's one called The Untethered Soul by Michael Singer. It's a great book. Uh, definitely makes a lot more sense now, but talks a lot about kind of distraction and kind of the egoic part of of our mind. And uh, you know, it's really <laughs> I have a newfound appreciation for it. Uh, you know, having done a lot of personal introspection and and kind of you know personal healing. 
but it's a phenomenal read. Beautiful. What about a, a movie and or documentary? Uh, so if we're going to stick on kind of the mental health uh, uh, topic, you know, I thought the movie Dosed is a kind of an indie film that was done recently um, that, you know, if people are interested in kind of seeing the impact of psychedelic therapy on somebody, you know, that has deep opiate addiction. Uh, I think that movie did a phenomenal job. Um, that documentary, um, it, you know, it follows a, uh, a young lady, uh, from Canada who has been, you know, just, you know, uh, burdened with opiate addiction for most of her life. Uh, you know, to the point where, you know, none of the, the, traditional solutions have worked and, you know, finds, you know, pretty deep healing, uh, through, uh, a couple different psychedelic, uh, experiences. And, and one of which is Iboga or Ibogaine, um, which is, you know, really has profound anti-addictive properties. Uh, but I thought, I thought that movie was tremendous. Um, did a really, really good job of just kind of showing, uh, the why behind kind of this movement, the resurgence of psychedelics and, and really frames it in the right light that you know, these things are not easy experiences. They are not recreational by any means. And, uh, and I think for anybody that thinks that these things are just recreational drugs that, you know, we're trying to decriminalize. Um, I think the movie dose does a really good job of, of highlighting uh, why that's just not the case. Brilliant. Well, I don't know if I've seen that one or not, but if I haven't, I'll definitely put it on my list as well. So thank you. Um, Next question. Is there a person that you would recommend to come on this podcast to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? Uh, well, you know what? I have a good friend of mine. Uh, his name's Sean Hansen. Um, Sean is a former EOD, um, did like IED response over in Iraq, uh, you know, spent a lot of time in combat and, uh, he is a performance coach, uh, you know, he has a, he actually has his own little, uh, podcast called the reload, but, uh, Sean is a phenomenal coach. Uh, he volunteers time, uh, with, uh, some of the veteran treatment that, uh, is being done, um, as a coach. And, you know, I think there's a lot of people that would frame Sean as, as a, a hybrid coach therapist. He's just, he's just an awesome, awesome human being and so giving and so insightful, uh, I think you would bring a, a unique perspective to, to what you have going on here, James. Beautiful. Well, thank you. It sounds amazing. All right. Well, then the, the last question before we make sure everyone can find you, um, what do you do to decompress these days? Oh, man, I climb. I, uh, I'm, I'm really into bouldering. I, uh, I have a home wall in my backyard. I have a 45-degree training wall. I have a, uh, a garage with a bunch of hangboards. Uh, so, so that's kind of like my decompression. Um, most of the time, I would tell you the the latest greatest thing that I am I am totally bought into is uh, hot and cold therapy. Uh, so contrast therapy. I invested in a a small uh, dry sauna, and I converted a deep freezer into an ice bath about three or four months ago. And I can tell you that has been life changing. Uh, as a daily practice for me. I mean, there's so many health benefits to, you know, spending time in the cold and spending time in the heat on a daily basis. And, uh, and I will tell you, this kind of segues back into the importance of sunlight and vitamin D and, and kind of setting up our, uh, setting ourselves up for, for proper sleep. Uh, 
I, you know, I spend time in the ice bath every single morning and instead of just putting clothes on and rewarming, if it's sunny out, I, I typically will go into my backyard and I sit in the sun to rewarm and, uh, a, the sun is a great way to rewarm, but, uh, B it's, it's really been a forcing mechanism for me to go out and get that morning sunlight that, uh, you know, gives us a vitamin D, but it also sets us up, uh, with a healthy circadian rhythm. Um, you know, has helped me with sleep and, uh, getting to sleep faster and, and getting more restful sleep. So that's, that's been, you know, if, if contrast therapy, uh, is, is a kind of a recreational activity, I, I think I kind of have turned it into that. Uh, that's definitely something that I love doing now. Now we didn't really talk much on sleep before. When you look back now, when you look at some of the men and women that, you know, you've, you've seen healing through the programs that you're a part of, how much is sleep quality a part of not only the physical healing, but the mental healing as well? Oh, it's, it's a massive part of it. And, and one of the things, I mean, I personally experienced this, but a lot of people have, have said it, it, it definitely is the case is sleep has improved dramatically after, you know, some of these, these major psychedelic experiences. Um, and it, and, and it's so critical for their brain to start healing. You know, if we're not getting enough REM and deep sleep, you know, basically we're going to be in a deficit and our brain is never going to heal. And we're going to have, we're going to be in a chronic state of inflammation. Um, and it, and it's only going to get worse. So yeah, there, I, I focus intently on sleep. I mean, that was part of the reason I started doing the, the time in the sauna and the ice bath was just to kind of, uh, further, further strengthen my sleep practices. Um, but yeah, it's so critically important, James. Beautiful. That's so good to hear. I mean, I think that's that's a big part of uh, our profession that I'm hoping that we can address is our men and women need to have more recovery, you know, between their shifts. And right now, I, I truly believe, as as with your dad, you know, that the the, uh, the shift work that we encounter, and then you add understaffing, all that kind of thing, the mandatory overtimes, it's really a huge contributor to the, the mental and physical ill health that our responders see. Yep, couldn't agree more. Well, Nick, I just want to say thank you so much. I mean, again, these perspectives are so important. I think that when we hear from all these different members of special operations and, you know, police and fire and high level, you know, athletes, and they're all saying the same thing as these common denominators, that's what really pulls down the stigma. As, as, as catchy as 22 push-ups are, it's not changing the conversation. You know, it's listening to storytelling yeah. like this that really is. And then, you know, when there are solutions, giving people an avenue to actually support and push for change that will truly make a difference, whether it's drug prohibition, whether it's, you know, all these other modalities that that we find, whether it's, you know, the work week um, that can truly, truly affect the health. And, you know, as as with you, give more longevity to our responders so they can enjoy a long retirement with their families. Yeah. So thank you so much for for being so generous with your time today. Yeah, it's absolute honor. I appreciate the invitation. 